Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Thea Linarduzzi, and this week, as well as our usual weekly show, we'll be bringing you this special episode of the podcast. It sits loosely in a little series of interviews we've done recently with Ali Smith, Ema McBride and Rose Tremaine, and you'll find all of those in our podcast feed too. Last week, our biography editor Catherine Morris travelled to Singapore to the 2016 Singapore Writers' Festival, where she met the American novelist and journalist Lionel Shriver to talk Trump, Brexit and Shriver's unsettling new novel, The Mandibles. My interview with Lionel Shriver, who gave a lecture and a masterclass at the festival, was recorded at the National Gallery Singapore in a room that adjoins its auditorium. There was a bit of background noise, I'm afraid... This may be the first TLS podcast to feature a hand dryer, so apologies in advance for that. Shriver is the author of 12 novels, including Big Brother, an exploration of attitudes to body weight. So much for that, a portrait of a family struggling under the pressure of mounting medical costs, and probably still her most famous, we need to talk about Kevin, a woman's account of her relationship with her son, who has carried out a massacre at his school. That book, published in 2003, won the Orange Prize for Fiction and became an international bestseller. The Mandibles follows four generations of a single American family between the years 2029 and 2047. The patriarch is 97-year-old Douglas Mandible, a debonair former literary agent whose vast fortune is wiped out by the sudden collapse of the dollar. It's not long before the whole family is struggling to survive. A character observes at one point that plots set in the future are about what people fear in the present. I began my interview by asking Lionel what fears underpinned the Mandibles. Well, most of all, of course, uh, financial collapse. And in that way, uh, this novel is a direct consequence of my having gone through uh, the near collapse of 2008. My concern is that uh, 2008 was all about what didn't happen. So this book is about going through uh, what we managed to skirt um, so recently, and I'm sure that's, uh, you know, the main thing that impelled my writing it. Mm-hmm. And in, in the novel, it's mounting debt. It's the government taking on too much debt, isn't it, that, mm-hmm. that, that causes the, the crash and also a, a currency, a new, a new currency, which is... Could you perhaps say a bit about the circumstances of the, of the crash in, in your book? Well, the dollar has been under stress for years. Uh, by implication, quantitative easing has eroded the value of the dollar already. And there's a sudden collapse of the dollar on the uh, international currency markets, which leads a collection of countries who obviously have this 
uh, alternative currency all ready to go. Mm-hmm. One of the world leaders is Putin, who is still controlling Russia. I wish that were incredible. <laughs> and they have another uh, currency that replaces the dollar as as the reserve currency, and it's called the Bancor. And I um, I got that uh, term from uh, John Maynard Keynes, who uh, supposed that uh, we might have an international currency that was backed by a basket of commodities, mm-hmm. right? So like yeah. wheat and um, and I threw in water and oil. So that uh, in reta- in retaliation, the American president announces that we are not going to pay back the national debt, which at that point is tens of trillions of dollars. It already is almost um, $20 trillion. Because when you don't pay your debts, people won't loan you money anymore because they won't get their money back. Uh, that means that uh, in, order to, in order to um, pay the government's bills and make up for the deficit, the, the U.S. has to start printing money. And that that whole thing that um, means that uh, not only does the stock market collapse, but the uh, but inflation takes off in earnest. And people have their gold confiscated, as you mentioned yesterday. That's right. And yeah. I got that idea from a, a, a reality again. In doing research for this novel, I tripped across the fact that I think I should have known before, uh, but apparently they don't make much of it in American history lessons. Uh, that uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1933 commandeered all the gold in private hands in the United States, and you were required by law to sacrifice your gold to the federal government. And the fines were astronomical. And um, if you if you if you didn't give it up, and uh, so and the prison sentences were huge. Uh, if if you didn't cooperate. Mm-hmm. And in 1933, Americans uh, didn't seem to resent it very much and um, got with the program. But in my view, if the president did that any any time in modern times, uh, the Americans I know would not give up their gold very easily. Yeah, and, and indeed there is a scene in the book where they've come knocking and yes. they've got two gold goblets in, in the in the house. Yes, yeah. so that, so that the, the, the government sends the army going house to house looking for gold and trying to scare people out of coming up with the, what they've been, you know, burying in the back garden. Mm. Um, a New York Times reviewer called you the Cassandra of American letters and your work is often described as prescient. How far does that apply in reference to this novel? Well, in terms of... Um, the rapidity with which uh, my country is capable of unraveling, um, this being the week of the election, I'm afraid it's all too pressing, though, of course, what I was looking at um, what was fiscal in nature, and uh, I, I don't have a demagogue and a complete fool being elected president, so I guess I missed a trick there. Yes, in fact, I was going to ask how relevant he is to your, to your vision. Um, you mentioned yesterday at your masterclass that if you'd written him as a character two years ago, your publishers would have said, well, that's absurd, no one's going to believe that he could be elected or even be a... Oh, I entirely, yeah. I entirely yeah. believe that. Yes. I think yeah. that Trump would make a failed fictional character. Mm. He's way too over the top. Yeah. Um, his, he's too inarticulate. He's got too low an IQ. I mean, I would imagine, uh, on paper, a successful demagogue would be quite seductive 
you know, well-spoken, mm. silver-tongued yeah. even, yeah, and uh, perhaps more physically attractive. I, I find Trump really an ugly man. I mean, in every sense. Obviously, insulting Donald Trump. It's it's one. It's impossible to be mean enough, honestly, and and be true to, true to life. I just don't think that if you if you wrote the story of this election in fiction that it would seem plausible. During the Muscast, you talked about the enormous value of thorough research in fiction writing, mm. including, for example, interviewing people about their jobs. What was the process of research for this book? Oh, I mostly read a bunch of books. Mm-hmm. You know, I went on Amazon, I confess, I went yeah. on Amazon, <laughs> um, and, uh, and I trolled through a bunch of economics books, and I, once I'd read uh, two or three, I paid attention to the books that those authors referred to, mm-hmm. which is the way you tend to research anything, especially when you start out not knowing anything. Because I, you know, I was an economic moron when when I started, and I and and, and I think that this novel is infused with the enthusiasm of the mm. autodidact, right? And it has different perspectives within that, doesn't it? Different characters have different opinions about it. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and when you are writing about a, an issue, um, and when when you want to explore that with any depth, it, you can't just express one position. No. So uh, the characters have very different perspectives on what's happening. And I think that's one of the things that mm. fiction is good for, is, is to animate discussions. Mm. Uh, I've, I, I have to say, I'm, I concede the point um, that a few reviews have made that uh, maybe there are uh, there there are discuss- economic discussions in the book that may try certain readers' patience or make them feel as if um, well nobody talks this way. Well, actually, fair enough, but they do talk that way in my house. Mm. <laughs> that was a. A, 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 that is a representation of the kind of conversation that, that takes place around my dinner table. Yeah, I would say that Lowell uh, is a professor of economics. Yes, and, and you know, that's obvious. Yeah. He's a plant. I've, mm-hmm. I've made that character a professor of economics on purpose so that I could make certain kinds of discussions mm-hmm. more credible. And um, he's quite confident that inflation is a good thing. And though, Yes, he's a classic Keynesian. Yeah. Yeah. He buys the, the kind of company line that you can have an almost infinite amount of debt and no problem, mm. and uh, he, he accepts that you need a positive rate of inflation. Mm-hmm. I don't. Mm-hmm. How did you go about anchoring the story in its time period? Given that, there, that the time period hasn't taken place yet. Yeah. Well, first off, it's not very far off, so I opted to not have that many things change. I wanted mm-hmm. it to feel as if this could be virtually tomorrow, mm-hmm. in much the same way that uh, Dave Eggers wrote The Circle. That is, you don't ever get a year in that book, as you do in mine, but the technology that he's using is only, like, it feels as if it's only a day or two mm-hmm. ahead. Mm-hmm. In, in, in the same way, um, the uh, technology that I use in this book, which is very light, I mean, mm-hmm. it's weird. That's not what I'm focused on, mm-hmm. and, and because it's not what I want you to pay attention to, I only change a few things, mm-hmm. and most of them are already in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, driverless yeah. electric yeah. cars. Yeah. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's just a nod toward the fact that yes, things wow, are probably going to change, but uh, they're not all going to be a big surprise. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And that's not what I, mm-hmm. I really want to focus on in this novel. Mm-hmm. And just to mention a couple more, we've got the Flex, which is a sort of much more sophisticated descendant of the, the smartphone. That's right, um, it, it, and it combines all the devices and you only need one. Mm-hmm. And home management systems, computerized. Yes. Again, which, and those are uh, in the pipeline already. And I like the fact that they go wrong as well. That's, <laughs> that's the main thing, is that my technology doesn't always work. Yes. And that's as true to my experience with it. Just to mention of the few for the other developments that we find in this well, language, book. yeah, and that interested me much more than coming up with a new gizmo. You know, slang in particular is constantly evolving, and I thought that it behooved me for each of the eras that, that I address in the book, uh, 2029 and 2047, to come up with a small set of expressions that will be new to the reader and that you have to, whose meaning you have to infer by mm. context. I, I tried to make it pretty easy on mm. you. Um, yeah, like careless. I, <laughs> I like <laughs> me, careless. Yeah. Careless for yeah. cool. Yeah. Or malicious for uh, really great. Mm-hmm. Treasury is a disparaging term. It means bullshit. Oh, okay. And um, 2047, that's yeah. the second trove, yeah. or a, a wanker in 2047 is a T bill. <laughs> so obviously, I'm making a point that anything to do with U.S. The U.S. government and money has become uh, the source of contempt. Mm. But I enjoyed inventing other thing, other expressions that aren't necessarily political in nature. You know, rubbish in 2047 is splug. Uh, or it, instead of saying something is totally crap, you'll say it's big and splug. And, which, you know, is just, it's just playfulness for its own sake. Yeah. There's a, a deeper theme here about what is revealed about a person when they lose their wealth and their forced to focus on the basics of survival. Mm-hmm. Um, disaster is found to be energising, and, and there's the line, maybe you couldn't really know anyone profoundly until they stopped getting their way. Is it your feeling that ways of life in industrialised countries are in some way deadening or distorting? There's that cliché about how people go to war and constantly talk about how, you know, I've never felt so alive think when all of your needs are taken care of and you're completely safe or you perceive yourself to be safe there is a deadening it's not a not a a bad choice of words it's funny i'm very conscious of that 
that is you feeling safe here in Singapore because it's obviously I can tell by all the billboards they're really obsessed with public safety there are these hilarious little signs all along by the bike paths about all the precautions you're supposed to take I mean they're really over the top I mean, there's one that says be sure to check your gear you know to make sure that you're 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 it's in working order don't bike if you're not well rested <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I, 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 I that's what I take pictures of stuff. Um, I mean, being being alive is risky, and therefore feeling alive is to feel at risk mm. in some way. And yet we go to great lengths to be okay, to be to be safe. It's a little wrongheaded. Mm. I mean, there's a been, there's an interesting um, movement in the states which upsets a lot of parents. Uh, but there are some people who are really trying to provide um, play areas that put kids at mild risk, that have them do things that are just a tiniest bit dangerous, <laughs> where they might actually scrape their knee the way I did I, I, as a kid all the time. Mm. But we are we're now protecting children so completely that we are turning them into helpless creatures. They're, they don't know how to deal with risk. They're Frady cats. We're it turning them into Frady cats. Creates neurosis. It, yeah, there it creates is a, neurosis. In this, and, and interestingly, rather than create a sense of security, create creates fearfulness. Mm. And there is a a paragraph in the in the second section of the book which sort of lists various changes. It says no one had the money, time, or patience for pathology of any sort. Mm. Uh, it's a description of. Well, that's a reference yeah. to the fact that when things get grim enough and you're dealing with your physical survival, there are a lot of neuroses that you simply can't afford. Mm. Things like gluten intolerance, lactose intolerance, and even pathologies like agoraphobia. I mean, if you, if you have to leave the house in order to feed yourself, then you get your butt out of the house. Yeah. And... I'm trying to say, that's a very playful section. If you look at the entire paragraph, it's a little tongue-in-cheek. But it is saying, you know, that there are, there are a lot of political issues in addition to all these neuroses and identity issues and mm. all this stuff that consume us and food obsessions. Mm. And they are luxuries of prosperity. And once you get down to the nitty-gritty, they, they are out the window. And there's a way in which the the America of my not so near future, that when you when you get to 2047, is the better for that. It has cleansed itself. Mm. It is a more resilient place, mm. and um, it's a place where people are less inclined to feel sorry for themselves. Uh, the best uh, definition I ever read of neurosis was inventing your own problems. And I, by 2047, I've got uh, I've got a country that has enough, has been through it, it, the ringer, has had to deal with enough real problems that the last thing it's going to do is invent more of them that are imaginary. There's a, a almost related issue of morality that being generous to other people is is also part of being prosperous, and that when your wealth is taken away from you, your circle gets smaller and smaller, and you end up just being able to feed the people around you. Could you say a bit about, about that? 
Well, yes, I'm interested in the way that uh, uh, one of the one of the luxuri- luxuries of, of mm-hmm. prosperity is a sense of social loyalty that goes beyond your clan, mm-hmm. and so you regard yourself as part of a larger community, as as and, and even as part of a nation, and for. Um, the more liberally minded, even, uh, part of part of an, in, in the world, you know, an international community, that becomes a, a more generous attitude toward your fellow man. That um, when things get really tight, you can, it's much more difficult to mm. afford. And yes, there's a, a line about Willing, who's the very intelligent um, sort of soothsayer character. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a teenager, and he always has his eye on what to do next tactically just to keep the family safe there's a line to the effect that revising his moral behaviour as food becomes scarcer is like updating an operating system yes that's what he's forced into yes yeah you know this process has an element of tragedy it's a loss it's meant to be a loss but it's also meant to have a kind of animal inevitability to it because Little by little, the circle to whom you are loyal gets smaller, and uh, it may come down just to your neighborhood. But there's a point at which you can't afford the neighbors anymore uh, because there's only so much food. Or you know, this is actually a regular theme of uh, disaster movies or apocalyptic stories. There's usually some character or some group of characters that is generous towards strangers and is willing to take them in and include them in that circle of what otherwise would just be the family but for the most part most of the characters <laughs> are only loyal to their immediate family that, that that's where your circle gets mm. narrowed to and um everyone else is the enemy because mm. they are competing for the same resources there is an exception here isn't there the tenant in the in the basement of uh, the house where all the family mem- members end up they he sort of becomes a family member yes and in fact one of his purposes in the story is to be representative of the stranger who is taken mm-hmm. in um in a, a channel 4 news interview you said that you're in favor of brexit partly because you're against Brussels micromanagement, but also slightly mischievously because you wanted to see what happened. Yes, that was, that was probably against my interest to admit. In the mandibles, Ed Balls is Prime Minister and the European Union has been dissolved. Would you consider... Actually, I don't say the EU has been dissolved, oh. but the euro, oh, the euro is out the window. Okay. And it has taken years and years to to go through what the, what's called the orderly unwinding of the euro. Yes. Right. So okay. we're back to the nouveau franc. <laughs> Would you consider writing a novel about British politics? I don't know. I don't have an idea right now that centers on British politics. And after all, British politics right now are in such a state of flux that it would probably be a mistake to have set a novel in modern-day Britain if it was focused on politics. We don't know what's going to happen. That's what's so fun. You've received lots of letters from readers in the past. People have even said that they decided not to have children after reading We Need to Talk About Kevin. I wondered what sorts of responses you've had to this novel. I haven't got, had uh, very many letters on this one yet, but I have spoken to any number of people at events who uh, claim to have found it terrifying. But lots of people have read uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin and claim to find that terrifying. I'm convinced that this is a slightly different version of terror. I think it's terror as recreation. It's like getting on a um, one of those rides in a fun fair 
uh, up roller coaster or something and squealing as you go down, but actually you're having a wonderful time. It's controlled fear. It's fear for fun. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.